Sam Nainoa was a 35-year-old guitar player living and working on Oahu when he was approached by a theater promoter with an intriguing offer. It was 1912, and the Hawaiian steel guitar, invented just a few decades earlier by Sam's first cousin Joseph Kekuku, was quickly becoming one of the hottest instruments in America. Vaudeville and theater were a big deal, and promoters were scouting talent from all over the place, including the Hawaiian Islands. That's Sam's great-granddaughter, Elizabeth Archambault. A promoter from New York had been on the islands and approached Sam, inviting him to play the vaudeville circuit on the mainland. Sam got his father in Laie to agree to watch his five children. Then he boarded a ship bound for Vancouver with his wife Eugenia for what they thought would be a few months on the continent. They would never come back to Hawaii again. Hawaiian musicians flooded the continental U.S. in the early 1900s. Hundreds upon hundreds of ukulele and steel guitar players and hula dancers seeking fame and fortune, or just the chance to earn a decent living. Some would die in poverty and obscurity thousands of miles away from their island homes. Others would find fame and fortune and change American music forever. From Honolulu Civil Beat, this is Offshore, Stories from Hawaii. I'm Ku'u Ka'uanoe. You are listening to episode four of our fourth season, Far From Home. This season, we're taking a deep dive into the Hawaiian diaspora and trying to figure out why so many native Hawaiians are leaving the islands today. But before we explore what's happening right now, we're combing through history and sharing little-known stories of Native Hawaiians who have left in the past. Music has always been an important part of Hawaiian culture, but few know that it took a group of vaudeville performers to bring Hawaiian music into the American mainstream, or of how an iconic island instrument would go on to influence the sounds of blues, country, and even rock and roll. I'm DeSoto Brown. We are in the Bishop Museum archives. DeSoto Brown is an archivist at Honolulu's Bishop Museum. DeSoto says that for a while, in the early 20th century, Hawaiian music, or a kind of anglicized version of Hawaiian music, was the most popular music in America. It was considered to be very evocative and very emotional because the steel guitar in particular really touched people in a way that a lot of other music didn't. The steel guitar was a big deal. It's part of what made Hawaiian music so popular. And it allowed hundreds of Hawaiian musicians to earn a living traveling the world. There was frequently the claim that nobody else can do it the way the real Hawaiian performers can do it. And the real Hawaiian performers, once you've heard them, you'll know it instantly. You know, you'll dream of being in a paradise island. And generally, people were really receptive to it and very, very swept away by the romance. No one knows for sure how the Hawaiian steel guitar was invented. But many credit a native Hawaiian from Oahu named Joseph Kekuku. 
Joseph was from a very musical family and started playing guitar when he was a little kid. One of the stories about Joseph goes something like this. When he was about 11, Joseph went for a walk down a railroad track carrying a guitar. He saw a loose metal bolt from the rails and picked it up. And when he did, it struck the guitar strings, making a unique sound. But his family has a different story. The earliest story that I heard growing up was learning about my great-grandfather's first cousin, Joseph K. Cuckoo, and how he invented the steel guitar. That's Elizabeth Archambault again. Her great-grandfather was first cousins with Joseph K. Cuckoo. They grew up together playing music in Laie. And the story that was told among our family was that Joseph had a pocket comb in his shirt pocket and he leaned over to pick up his guitar and it fell out of his pocket and hit the strings on the neck of his guitar and created different sounds that he hadn't heard before and and that was supposedly the moment that he discovered a new idea and took several years to sort of hone in that idea and eventually came up with the technique of inventing the steel guitar. Joseph K. Kuku eventually fabricated a steel bar and finger picks to pluck the strings and run the bar over the strings as well, developing a style of playing that could translate to other guitars and other genres of music. And he did most of this as a high school student at Kamehameha Schools in Honolulu. It was a very new modern style. That's John Troutman, a music curator at the Smithsonian. He's also the author of a book about the steel guitar. When he was demonstrating this, then all the other kids just freaked out. Um, And they began taking this idea to all of the islands. And so by the early 1900s, you see examples of this popping up in other islands within Hawaii, not just Oahu. In 1904, Joseph quit his job as a clerk in Honolulu and set sail for the mainland. He set up shop in Seattle, playing with local bands and teaching other musicians how to play the steel guitar. We see that, in fact, people were remarking left and right all day long about how this was an entirely new concept for playing the guitar, how it sounded unlike any other guitar playing they'd ever heard in their lives. Before long, Joseph was touring up and down the West Coast playing with other Hawaiian bands. Hawaiian music was catching fire, and Hawaiian musicians were heading to the U.S. in greater and greater numbers. There's an important piece of context here about all these Hawaiian musicians leaving for the mainland. Hawaii was undergoing massive change in the early 1900s. It was just a few years after the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom, and times were tough for Hawaiians. I think that everyone in the period was trying to figure out how to handle this, this overthrow, and how to handle the rapid changes that were taking place in the economy and the islands as well. Most of the jobs available to Hawaiians at the time were low-paying menial labor. Hawaiian music really serves multiple purposes in the 1890s for Hawaiians because on the one hand, we do see this rise of a labor force of really good musicians in the 1890s and early 1900s who find a way to make a living um, and to take care of their families through music. Hawaiian musicians were also helping preserve Hawaiian language 
at a time when its use was being widely discouraged. And many musicians were also using their platform to promote sovereignty and cultural pride. And the demand for performers was huge. Soon there were dozens, likely hundreds of American performers masquerading as Hawaiians. Most were white performers, coming out with outlandish claims at being Hawaiian. But there were also Latinos and people of color who found more acceptance on the stage and in American society by donning a Hawaiian name. In American popular culture at the time, it's interesting that a lot of people considered Hawaiians and Polynesians to be sort of proto-Caucasian. In other words, they weren't necessarily as good as white people, but they were also kind of okay. That's DeSoto Brown again. And he points out that back then, there were lots of popular plays and songs about white men falling in love with Polynesian women. And yet, they're still dark-skinned people in worlds where if you're in the theater, people are going to know, oh yeah, you're Hawaiian and I can look at you on stage and applaud you. But if you're Hawaiian walking around in the streets and you want to go into a, a restaurant in some places, that's not necessarily going to work unless you're able to say, oh no, I'm one of the performers at the theater or something right down the street. Oh, all right, you can come in. So you might have gotten a pass that an African-American would not have gotten. Segregation issues aside, just being a performer was tough in that day and age. Performers in general, in lots of cases, were considered kind of shifty or lower class or not that trustworthy. So it wasn't a totally respectable business to be in in the first place. Joseph Kekuku toured for years with Toots and July Paka. The musical act was insanely popular. They are credited with making Hawaiian music so successful in the U.S. July Paka was a Hawaiian musician. His wife Toots was white, but she was promoted as being not just Hawaiian, but also Native American. So many people were trying to capitalize on the popularity of Hawaiian music that in 1916, a group of Hawaiians tried to start a Hawaiian musicians union in NYC. Stop the imitators, read a newspaper ad trying to drum up interest in the union. Musicians of different races, they said, had, quote, usurped the name as well as the mannerisms of our country. There's no evidence that the union actually got off the ground. But Hawaiians stuck together in other ways. There would have been some kind of networking going on. I know this person who knows this person and they're in this place. I'll go there and they can get me started. And this is true for the whole time period that we're talking about and even into the 60s and 70s. Um, in New York City, where of course there were a lot of venues where people could perform, once there were Hawaiian musicians there, they always were finding each other and hanging out together. Life on the road was not easy, and not just because of growing competition from wannabe Hawaiians. Everybody in vaudeville had fairly tough life in that you were constantly on the go. You were living in temporary arrangements in rundown hotels or apartments. You were at the mercy of your employer. Even with all the uncertainty, a life on the road was a chance for something new, 
and scores of men and women jumped at the opportunity. They were drawn to what the mainland had and with the different opportunities than what was happening on the islands. Um, my grandma Ula and her older sister Joyce, they were born basically on the road. That's Elizabeth Archambault again. Her great-grandparents, Sam and Eugenia Nainoa, were recruited by a vaudeville promoter to come to the U.S. in 1912. My auntie Joycey, she learned to play the bass and she danced. Um, my grandma Ula, she basically became my great-grandfather's prodigy on the steel guitar, and that ended up being her instrument. The family spent more than a decade on the road, touring all across the U.S. You signed contracts with certain theater chains, and you were committed to do certain shows and travel the country. A few years ago, Elizabeth had an art residency in Pennsylvania, and she found out that her great-grandparents had once performed at a theater about a mile from where she was staying. And that just sort of sent me down a path of doing research of like, wow, if they played a mile from here, where else have they played, you know? The answer was hundreds of cities. And they hit most of those cities more than once over the years. Elizabeth ended up taking an extended road trip, visiting as many of those towns as she could on her way back to L.A. And I went to libraries, historical societies, talked to city historians, um, got tours of of the theaters that were still standing, uh, took photos of what was on the site. It was definitely a life-changing experience for me, and I learned so much, not only about my family's history, but you know, a lot about the country and my life and and who I am. It was an interesting time. And it gave her some insight and empathy into what life on the road might have been like a century ago. Just being alone, you know, three years ago in my truck had its challenges and it was difficult in its own way, but, you know, probably luxurious compared to what it was 100 years ago. And, And riding the trains and the trolleys with family and instruments and your luggage. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they ran into difficulties, you know, being Hawaiian. There's not much we have in firsthand recollections of these experiences. But Elizabeth has found a few newspaper articles that hint at how her great-grandparents made their way. There was a city or a town that he had stopped in on by train and The article had talked about how a native Hawaiian had stopped in their town and went to the local newspaper and um, had asked, inquired about what local theaters were in the area. You know, that was news back then, you know. (laughs) Um, And it just showed to me that my, you know, my grandpa was a hard worker, you know, that he he was seeking out other opportunities to perform. And and that was that was one way that they that he did it. And then there was the city in Michigan where Sam put an ad in the paper because he had lost his pocket watch. He said, if you find it, I'm performing at this theater on these dates. (laughs) Um, I don't know if he ever found, got it returned, but I thought that was interesting that instead of a phone number or or a home address, it was where he was performing that week, you know. All these visits to small towns up and down the United States that Sam and his family made, that hundreds of Native Hawaiians made, 
it had a profound and often overlooked impact on American music. By 1915, from what we can gather, Hawaiian guitar music was outselling every other genre of recorded music in the United States. That's John Troutman again. The Hawaiian guitar becomes very popular, and not only uh, on the mainland, but of course in various parts of Europe, um, in Australia, in the Philippines, in Japan, in China. I mean, it's all over the place because Hawaiians are traveling all over the world as they had for centuries and millennia before that. And so a lot of other folks began taking up the instrument and not only attempting to play Hawaiian music, but also uh, finding ways to incorporate the sounds of that um, instrument uh, into these other kind of vernacular traditions that have been longstanding in other parts of the world for some time. These traveling musicians spread the sounds of Hawaiian steel guitar all across America. There were droves of Hawaiian um, musicians who were performing throughout the Deep South and in every county seat of Mississippi that there was in the 19-teens, that there was a much greater sense of interaction that was taking place that was leading to the proliferation of all these different sounds. Early blues musicians were listening. If you look at the blues and you listen to Sunhouse or you listen to Oscar Woods, if you listen to um, Robert Johnson, if you listen to Muddy Waters, you're hearing the sound of the slide guitar. In fact, people like Sunhouse referred to the slide style of playing as the Hawaiian way of playing. It wasn't just blues either. The steel guitar had a profound impact on country music. But when you read about the history of both genres, roots music that led to rock and roll and everything that came after, you almost never read about Native Hawaiians. As a longstanding music historian, it's something that I'd never heard of before, I'd never recognized. And so then I began to wonder, well, why don't we know this? You know, why don't we understand uh, this central and powerful role that Hawaiians have played in the development of all kinds of of musical genres? This this is a history that had completely been ignored by music historians and cultural historians. Record companies in the 1920s would recruit musicians based on their race, and they saw everything in black and white. The result of this, of course, is that That left us in uh, the U.S. with the proliferation of a variety of genres that have been racialized and that really betray a much more multicultural um, interior to the production of, of that music. Country music was for white musicians and rhythm and blues were for black musicians. And so we've been fighting against these these race-based genres of music that cut out really critically important populations of people who were deeply implicated in the origins of that music, including Native Americans, including people from Hawaii, including Latinx people who were just written out of that history, written out of the stories. And so as a result of that, um, we don't see the fact that actually Native Hawaiians inspired the development of the Delta Blues slide guitar. We We don't see the fact that Native Hawaiians were inspiring the development of the use of the steel guitar in country music. All of that history was just gone. It was just um, absent. Ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, Sam K. Nainoa speaking, a real Native. 
and director of the Sam K. Nainoa Foundation of Hawaiian Music Studios at 235 West 18th Street, Los Angeles, 15, California. In the 1920s, after more than a decade on the road, Sam and Eugenia Nainoa settled down in Los Angeles. Sam opened up a music school. Since the origination of the Hawaiian guitar by my cousin Joseph Kikuku of Laie O'ahu, TH, I have the credentials here to prove it. As far as I know, no one has ever come forward, either in words or in writing, to explain the intricate working of this unique instrument. I call it unique because it is played different from any other instrument in the world. And he also gave lectures on Hawaiian culture. L.A., Hollywood was sort of becoming a real hot spot. That's Elizabeth again. My grandfather continued to play, perform in the local theaters, which many still stand on Broadway in downtown L.A. And also his daughters um, continued to perform as adults, and they had their own band called Nainoa's Islandettes. And... um, They would play in various places around town. A young man who lived down the street from Sam and his family developed a serious crush on Sam's daughter, Ula. So he marched over to the music studio and signed up for guitar lessons. And he bought the lap steel, the Rickenbacker Bakelite, and he would take lessons on that with Sam. And he eventually won them over and married my grandmother. We still have that guitar, too. Ula gave up performing after she got married and had children. Elizabeth remembers her as a proud Hawaiian woman who played beautiful guitar, wore colorful mu'umu'us and flowers in her hair. But she never got to visit Hawaii. She never went to Hawaii in her entire life. So there were some siblings she never met unless they came here to the mainland. When my great-grandmother Eugenia passed away in 76, her oldest daughter, her namesake, came over to come to the funeral, and that was the first time that Eugenia had met her youngest sisters. Sam and Eugenia died in Los Angeles. Their intention was to come back to the islands, um, but no, they never actually came back to visit or live. They ended up settling in Los Angeles in the late 20s and 30s um, and dying here as well. So they were actually buried here in, in Los Angeles. And Joseph Kekuku, the man whose way of playing the guitar transformed so much of American music? Joseph Kekuku came over to the mainland in 1904 and toured the mainland for a while before touring Europe in a um, big show called Birds of Paradise. And when that wrapped up, he came back over to the mainland and toured a little bit more and then eventually just became a teacher of steel guitar in Chicago and he ended up passing away um, and is is currently buried in Dover, New Jersey. Um, He died in 1932. So he never, Joseph never made it back to the islands either. You've been listening to Offshore, stories from Hawaii. I'm Ku'u Ka'uanoe. We've looked at some amazing stories this season of Hawaiians who left long ago. 
Next week, we're going to take a look at the journeys Hawaiians are taking today. While some are exciting, others are painful. What's causing so many Hawaiians to leave the islands, and what does that mean for the future of Hawaii? Offshore is produced by Honolulu Civil Beat, a nonprofit news organization dedicated to building an informed community with news you can trust. You can find other seasons of Offshore at offshorepodcast.org. Special thanks in this episode to Elizabeth Archambault and family for sharing the recordings of Sam Nainoa. If you're enjoying these episodes and want to talk to us and other Offshore listeners, we're holding virtual talk story sessions every week. Sign up at offshorepodcast.eventbrite.com or email us at producer at offshorepodcast.org. Hopefully by now you know plenty about Hawaiian culture, but how familiar are you with other places around the globe? Do you know about the mythical macaws that live atop the rock of Gibraltar? Or the first bungee jumpers, the land divers of Vanuatu? If you'd like to, you might want to check out 80 Days, an exploration podcast. Each episode takes you to a new far-flung location, exploring the history, geography, and culture of the places you know least about. Search 80 Days wherever you get your podcasts. Offshore's executive producer is Patty Epler. Our producers are Jessica Terrell, April Estrelon, and Clara Caulfield. Our engineer this season is Jackie Sojiko. This is season four of Offshore, and we hope you're enjoying it. But let's pull back the curtain just a bit. Our small podcast team spent several months researching, reporting, traveling, fact-checking, and producing this ambitious new season. We're one of only a few local nonprofit newsrooms investing time and resources in creating a serialized podcast. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider supporting our reporters by making a tax-deductible gift. Visit offshorepodcast.org and hit the support button at the top of the page. That's offshorepodcast.org. Thanks for supporting us.